things. Well, that'll bring us to today's topic. Last week we introduced uh, this subject and talked about why we need it and, uh, and, and laying some groundwork. But the, today I want to turn more specifically still on the broader topic of, of the creation of sexuality. I want us to look at the Bible and what God has to say about this because uh, it's important that we you know, have a, a right view of something uh, if things have gone wrong, and they have, and we'll be talking about that in the upcoming weeks, uh, then we need to know what, what, the, what, we, what we left, what was the standard. It's important that we start with understanding the theology of any subject. Theology is just what God thinks about something. The study of God, the way we study God is we study what he said, what he has revealed, uh, particularly in his word. And so Paul, for example, usually starts with theology in his epistles, and then he ends with the application of that theology, the so what. Here's, here's how this applies to our lives. And as we've said many, many times, ideas have consequences, and if we have wrong ideas, those wrong ideas are going to produce some bad fruit, some bad consequences. And we said last week we can have wrong ideas to the left, wrong ideas to the right, uh, and so what's important is that we know what the truth is. We have to understand what sexuality is. We need to understand why it was created, uh, what, it's, what is its purpose, what are its goals, what are its benefits, and what are its dangers. These are all things that the Bible clearly addresses. And it's our obligation as creatures to conform our thinking to his thinking. It's not just our sexuality that is impure. We need to remember that sin has affected our thinking itself. Uh, So we even think whatever we're thinking about is subject to being influenced by our sinful desires, our sinful perspective, the other sinful influences that we might have. And if our sexuality is ever going to be pure it will be because our thinking about it was first made pure. We're going to begin to have a biblical perspective on these issues. That's what we need to do. We're going to look at ourselves and our own sexuality the way God sees it. We're going to agree with God and change our way of thinking about these things. That's part of the process of growing and becoming more Christ-like. Uh, putting off the old and taking up the new wherever we need to. We're not going to simply respond to or react uh, to the culture and let, or let it tell us what we should think or feel. How much cultural influence is there when it comes to this subject? How often? All the time. Constant. Everywhere. So if that influence is there, if I'm going to have any hope of countering that, I'm going to have to have something to counter it with. Uh, And we're going to have to learn how to think about other people and about the opposite sex and the same sex. We have to know what God says. We have to adopt those ideas for ourselves, And we, we have to root out all the wrong concepts and ideas. So there's a lot to do. There's demolition work and then there's rebuilding. Uh, Because we've picked up all sorts of misconceptions in many places, including the Christian community. And many of us might even be suffering from our own childhoods of not having 
this kind of instruction from our parents or from others who had the wisdom to give it to us. So we, we have uh, dealt with these issues, which everyone does. It's, a, it's an inescapable concept. It will be dealt with. It's only a question uh, of how and by whom and what influences are going to address the questions that everyone has. And to be self-conscious Christians means that we must tackle the subject, in this case sexual purity and sexuality in general, and say simply, what does God think about it? I don't want to develop my own system. This is hard work, and it's important work, and it is foundational work. Now, sexuality is, as we said, is central to humanity. There it is in the very first chapter of the Bible. I mean, the first few chapters of Genesis, first 11 chapters in particular, but even the first three chapters contain a great deal of foundational material. That's why I think the book of Genesis comes under such assault. If you can undermine the book of Genesis, then you've really undermined the Bible. Um, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his image. Uh, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God, as God separated and defined other things in creation, for example... Uh, we see the day and the night, the land and the sea, the heavens and the earth. So too, he divided man, mankind, if you will, into male and female. Division is one of the ways we define things. This and not that. We can recognize a distinction. And so God is doing that in creation. He is creating and he's making certain divisions and things in order to define those things, to say this this is in this realm, this is in another, the, these things provide this function. Uh, you know, if he's talking about the sun and the moon, uh, the light by day and light by night, uh, day and night, all those provide various functions uh, and, and have a place that they're to occupy. And so, um, these separate things were designed to complement one another and to complete one another. This separation of the sexes was critical to the mandate that God gave them. So let's think about that a minute. Again, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created them male and female, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what is their task? We want, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Why? because I want you to fill the earth with other people like you to go out and to rule the earth, to exercise dominion, to be the king and queen, if you will, over this creation that I've given you, this paradise. And so this design, this gift of sexuality, here in the first chapter of the Bible, was the most powerful tool to accomplish that task, that mandate. In order to fill and subdue the earth, what's the first thing they had to do? They had to multiply. They had to, uh, there had to be a man and there had to be a woman. Babies needed to be born in order to fill the world. 
And as we will see in the next lesson, sin uh, will turn this on its head. The Bible teaches us that marriage is a sexual relationship in the context of a covenant. It's a relationship between one man and one woman. It's in the context of a covenant where there are duties, where there are responsibilities, where there are privileges that go along with these sexual privileges, the duties and responsibilities, and putting those things together is very important. Fire is good in the fireplace. Fire in the middle of the living room floor is destructive. So fire is good when it's in the right place. Fire is destructive when it's not. There are clear responsibilities that go with our God-given sexuality. Things like respect and honor and love, which are things, are, are things that go with this. And we know that the world, of course, has come to have a very different view. Nevertheless, they are essential if we are to fully enjoy the delights of sexuality, including the intimacy and affections that are God's gifts. These can only be apprehended when we have the whole package together. And again, this is going to be critical here. We can't pick and choose and say, well, I want just the, the privileges, I want just the pleasures, I want just the benefits, but I don't want the responsibilities that go with that. And when we try, as we're going to see, to do that, as, as people so often do, uh, things begin to fall apart and it becomes a destructive thing. To try and teach history without any reference to the role of sexuality is to leave out one of the major elements that is necessary to understand human history. Again, let me go back to our opening idea. God has this in the first pages of the Bible. It is the most powerful tool for filling the earth and exercising dominion. So what's going to happen if we disregard that and don't and say, oh, well, we don't talk about that. We don't want to consider that. Well, it's hard to imagine any significant event in history that this has not impacted in some way. Again, involving a broad range of relationships and subjects and uh, circumstances. There have been wars fought over such things um, and so forth. So um, sexual sin, sexual impurity is a very powerful and central theme that runs through the story of mankind. So when it was holy and pure uh, in the beginning, it was powerful to, to fill the earth with godly people, to, to rule the earth. But when it is, when it is corrupted and when it is twisted and is used in the wrong way, it's still a powerful tool. A chainsaw is a pretty powerful tool while you're cutting up trees, but you don't want to turn somebody loose in the house with it. It's still a powerful tool, but it's not going to be accomplishing good things at that point. And so it would be hard to overestimate how big a part sexuality plays in our lives, our families, our churches, in our communities, and indeed in the world. It involves everything from procreation to its effects on marriage and personal relationships. Again, it has the power to destroy lives. It drives many decisions that people make, and therefore it is critical that we understand the nature of sexuality. Now, God created our bodies. He made our sexuality, and he has a lot to say about it. 
In fact, this maleness and femaleness was essential for mankind, as we said, to accomplish the task of filling the earth and ruling the earth. When the two were brought together, they became what? One flesh. They completed one another. United physically and spiritually to fill the earth with more godly men and women. In every way, men and women are made to correspond to one another. Someone described it as if you, kind of like if you took a grapefruit and made a zigzag cut to cut it in half and you had the two halves, these, these fit back together perfectly. They correspond to one another. And that's the idea. Adam, uh, of course, had no one to correspond to him after he named the animals. He, he was alone, and God said, that's not good. I'll make one that corresponds to him, that fits, that completes, if you will. And so every, in every way, then, they're made to correspond. Malachi asks this question, Malachi 2.15, but did he, did God not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. So one of the primary reasons for our sexuality is to make more human beings who, who then will glorify God and, uh, and so forth. Before the fall, this untainted sexuality provided a bond for the family and society and the foundation for community. It was a form of communion. It is a form of communion when it's in the right place. It was and remains this powerful force in human history. And to ignore this fact is, is perilous, really. And, we, and that's part of the problem. When the church has not talked about such things because we think they're bad or dirty or, or inappropriate, and we, we just check out of the subject, here's one of the most powerful things that God gave, and we don't want to talk about it because we're afraid of it. And so, again, what happens is the world rushes in and says, we'll do it. We'll teach the class. Uh, give me your children. Uh, we'll, we'll take care of it. And I'm not just talking about sex ed in the schools. Uh, I'm talking about the sex ed that's going on all the time, everywhere. Uh, they're happy to do that. Question 10 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, how did God create man? And the answer God created man, male and female, after his image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. And so righteousness and holiness are synonymous with purity. And so in the beginning, there was sexuality, but that sexuality was both righteous and holy. Man and woman were pure and undefiled. Marriage and the marriage bed would remain, uh, excuse me, would be the place where this sexual purity could be propagated and expressed. Indeed, as the book of Hebrews still informs us, Hebrews 13:4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. Adulterers and fornicators God will judge. So we see again God creating the sexuality, male and female, and then defining the terms of how that is to function. So when sexuality is in the place where God designed it to be, it is good and it's glorious. It is to be received with thankfulness and to be viewed as another good gift from God. This is the original intent. God's Word tells us why He created sexuality. In 
Denny Burke's book, uh, What is the Meaning of Sex? He points out two categories of the purposes of our sexuality, and I want to take a little time to talk about those. First is the ultimate purpose, and then second, subordinate purposes. The purpose of human sexuality is inescapably bound up with its origin. The purpose of sexuality is inescapably bound up with its origin. In other words, your view of the origin of this is going to have a lot to say about what you think about it and how it's to be used. Did God create it? Did God call it good? Did God define it? Did God give limitations to it? If he did, then you're going to have one view. And if you don't believe God created it, and it came, you know, we've just evolved into where we are, then you're going to have a very, very different view of what sexuality is. And that's why it's so critical we get our theology right here. And everybody has a theology. Everybody has a God. Only a question of which God and which theology, because that is also an inescapable concept. So, what is the ultimate purpose? Well, we know this, any of us who've learned uh, the first question of the Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, Sex, gender, manhood, womanhood, all of it ultimately exists for the glory of God. We are His creatures. We are uh, His creation. We are to reflect Him. We are made in His image, and therefore we're to tell the truth about Him. God uh, defines the means by which our sexuality will glorify him. And he spells it out in both special and in natural revelation. Special revelation is the Bible. Natural revelation is through the things that are made. It's spelled out. We need to pay careful attention to both. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13-18, God reveals that the human body's design reveals some of its purposes. And so let me read that. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise, up, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Now there's an argument being made here. This, This revelation is no less clear with sexual intimacy than it is with eating. The stomach was made for food. The male and female anatomy clearly was made for their own special purpose. What could possibly be wrong with us using our bodies according to the purposes for which they were made? This was an argument used by the Corinthians, though. They twisted that argument to justify immorality. Paul exposes the foolishness of this argument by pointing out that the body is not, has not been made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
Paul doesn't question the subordinate use of the body for sexual intimacy, but he does say that the body exists for the Lord. That is the ultimate end. So, yes, it's made for sexuality and intimacy, but in a certain context. It always, that has to serve the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. And God's the creator, and God gets to define what that is and what, what is and isn't glorifying to him in, in this regard. By focusing only on the subordinate end of the body, uh, the Corinthians had missed the ultimate end, which is God's glory. They misconstrued how the subordinate ends, that is, again, saying, well, look, he made us male and female, therefore he must have wanted us to exercise this sexuality. And that is true as far as it goes, but it's, it's only true when it's in the context of the ultimate reality that that still has to bring glory to God. And so our sexuality is not to be expressed for our own sake, but for God's sake. This means shunning every sexual union outside the covenanted union of one man and one woman. When we venture outside of this, we do so at great peril to ourselves and to others. Since the body exists for the Lord, its proper use must be under the Lordship of Christ. In verse 15, Paul begins with two rhetorical questions. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you know that? As you sit here right now, do you know that your body is attached to Christ, is a member of Christ. You've been united to him. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. With these questions, Paul is telling us that the believer's physical body makes up Christ's own members and limbs. We're not just disembodied spirits that are united to Christ. We are bodies and spirits that have become members of the body of Christ. Sexual immorality means, and listen carefully, that you are involving Christ's body in a sinful act. Therefore, Paul answers these questions with a most emphatic, certainly not. How could you possibly do that? How could you possibly, as a representative of, of Christ's body, as a member of Christ's body, go bearing his name and engage in this act of immorality? You're engaging him in that. You're bringing him and his reputation with you. John Piper wrote, uh, The ultimate thing to see in the Bible about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. Most foundationally, marriage is, is the doing of God. Most ultimately, marriage is the display of God. It is designed by God to display His glory in a way that no other event or institution does. And when we try to circumvent that, either by getting ahead of the game uh, with sexual immorality before marriage, or after we're married, going outside those boundaries... Uh, again, adultery or fornication, then we are certainly uh, saying otherwise about what marriage is for. Augustine said, Marriage, therefore, is a good in all the things which are proper to the married state, 
And these are three. It is, or, it is the ordained means of procreation, it is the guarantee of chastity, and it is the bond of union. Now, what are the subordinate purposes? The ultimate purpose is the glory of God. The subordinate purpose, purposes are, and I want to suggest a few, for, the covenant, bond, for covenant bonding, uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. And in Malachi 2.14, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so this, this bonding of man and woman as husband and wife sexually is a part of that. And that is a critical part of that bonding. Sec, uh, we also mentioned here for procreation, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's for making babies. Third is to avoid sin. First uh, Corinthians 7.2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Singular. Woman. Man. Opposite sex. That's God's standard. God gets to define those terms. Everything else is sexual immorality. Now, I want to suggest one Augustine didn't mention, but I think is clearly biblical, and we're not going to, I'm not going to develop this fully, but I think it's also for pleasure. It's for, part of that is the companionship and the intimacy and the affection and the, the, uh, the refuge, if you will. Proverbs 5.18 tells us to rejoice with the wife of our youth. And there's many other passages that, that speak in these terms. The Bible is not prudish when it comes to such issues. Uh, uh, the book of Song of Solomon is very much uh, a sensual uh, love song between a man, a husband, and a wife. Um, and so uh, that's, that's another subordinate uh, purpose, if you will, of sexuality. Now, let me say something about the marital mystery. The apostle, and that's why, again, I want to emphasize why we're talking so much about marriage. Marriage is the place that God created, the fireplace, if you will, where this sexuality, uh, this aspect of sexuality, intimacy, can be expressed and glorify God. Okay, so nowhere else is that permitted. So when, when you're flirting with those things, then you're outside of where God says he's glorified. That's possible within the confines of marriage to not glorify him too through other sinful behaviors, but that's not right now the purview of, of what we're talking about. The Apostle Paul says that the mystery of marriage is great in Ephesians 5.32, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now by mystery, Paul means that the meaning of marriage is something that was once hidden, uh, but that has now been revealed fully in the gospel. The deepest meaning of marriage is that it is an, an enacted parable. Your marriage is a parable of another marriage, not the other way around. I think that is a critical, uh, maybe it's a fine point, but an important point. Okay? God doesn't, isn't just using the idea that Christ is in the church or married, and that's a nice metaphor, and, and we just use your marriage as an example. It's the other way around. Christ's marriage is the real marriage. Remember, we're going to have the marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven. Uh, it's the eternal wedding. Remember, the book of Revelation ends in a tragedy and a comedy. It has an eternal funeral and an eternal wedding. 
And it's a matter of which group you're in. The eternal wedding is the picture of Christ and His church. Your marriage, because you're a creature of God, you're made in His image, is to be a reflection of that. Tell the truth about that. And so the deepest meaning of marriage is that it is an enacted parable of another marriage, the marriage of Christ to his bride. Can anyone really know that definition of marriage apart from God's revelation of the mystery? Are we just a bunch of animals that happen to generally or to some degree mate for life? Are we just like a, you know, a pair of penguins? Our sexuality is to be a true representation of Christ and his bride, the church. Thus, sexual sins, that is, doing things our way, is a lie and a theft. It profanes the name of God and it dishonors what God has made holy. If you think about that in the garden, what was the problem there? God made, and we're going to talk about this more probably next time, but... There's the fruit. God says you can have everything here, but you can't have that. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what did they want? The one thing they were told they couldn't have. We don't think God knows what he's talking about. What happens in sexual sin? We don't think God knows what he's talking about. It looks good. I desire it. So why not just take it? We'll decide that, God. You don't tell us what to do. We will determine what's good for us. And is that, does that not sound familiar? Is that not echo in your own hearts, perhaps, but also certainly in the world that we live in? Nobody is going to tell us what to do when it comes to this subject. We can decide that for ourselves. So our sexuality... Um, let me just say this. The Lord's table is a place of intimacy and covenant renewal. We bear his name. And when we use that sexuality that God gave us, which is ultimately for his own glory, we not only, or excuse me, when we, uh, when we uh, use that for other reasons, we not only defile ourselves, we ultimately blaspheme his name. As I say, the table is a picture of a couple of things. It's certainly the picture of a family table where we all gather as brothers and sisters around the table and the Father has set this table before us and feeds us. But I want to suggest that this table is also a picture of a bride and a groom and a picture of intimacy. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, some folks might want to blush about. I'm not going to blush about it because I think it's glorious and beautiful. We come here to renew covenant. We come here with our faithful husband, Christ, every week and are reminded how faithful he is and how much he loves us. And how he gives himself for us and sacrifices himself for us. And we see his love. And as a result of having met him in that place, we go out renewed and ready to live again, ready to walk with him again. Now, we fail, but he says his goal is to present a bride to his father spotless and without blemish. He's at work in us as our faithful husband to shape us and to care for us and to bring us to that place. And so I think it's fully appropriate to see this table with those two images. And those are the, uh, as Robert Capon points out, in your own house, the, the marriage bed and the table are the two geographic centers of your house. 
There are a lot of things that go on there, from rest and thankfulness and service and joy and uh, communion, and all those things are taking place there that are reflected here. Remember, liturgy, what we do on Sunday morning is to get us ready to go out the doors and to do those same kinds of things at our house. So, our sexuality is given to bring God glory, and it is to be used in a manner that pleases Him. And I want to close this morning with a passage from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1-8. through 8. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we have given you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother. By the way, sexual immorality is defrauding your brother or sister. It's stealing what is not yours to take. No one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. What matter? Sexuality. Sexual immorality. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness or purity. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us the Holy Spirit. Now you know that you're not your own. You, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God, therefore, with your bodies. So we've laid a foundation here that God has created our sexuality. God has defined it, male and female. He has, he's talked about the necessity of these two coming together in a covenant bond in marriage, and that that sexuality finds its only legitimate expression in that context because that's the context that glorifies him. So in that context, if you're married, rejoice in that. And if you're not married and you're anticipating marriage, let's say, uh, or if it's a child, we're going to teach our children that that is the place that they're going to gain, the, they're going to glorify God, they're going to be blessed, and they're going to be healthy, and they're going to have great joy and delight in these good gifts of God. But if they choose, or if any of us choose, to step outside of those boundaries ahead of time or after the fact, what does the text say? God is going to bring about a judgment upon that, that uh, he is the avenger of all those who decide to do it their way. And we'll talk more about that. There are all kinds of ways that that uh, avenging takes place in the lives of people with broken lives and marriages and health and all kinds of things that uh, our world is full of uh, and, uh, and, and it's very, very painful. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you set forth the parameters and directions and 
that will not only bring you glory, but ultimately bring us real happiness and real joy that lasts, that we might know your good gifts. Help us, Lord, to remember who we are, that we are members of the body of Christ, that we always are connected and attached to him. We represent him wherever we are and whatever we're doing. Help our marriages to reflect the beauty of your relationship to the church. Uh, as husbands, may we love our wives sacrificially. As wives, may, may they, Lord, with joy be able to show respect to their husbands. And together, may we enter into that glorious mission that you gave us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with godly children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.